Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer your question, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hi, John. How are you? I'm all right. You seem a little sick. I can tell even from your voice <laughs> that you're just not feeling 100%. I'm not feeling 100%. I have uh, I had a sudden... Sudden onset uh, intestinal discomfort. Uh, and now... I'm just I'm I'm working my way through the uh, there's a bunch of pigeons that have decided to live on my house and uh, sure they also seem to be in dis- distress I <laughs> I don't know like there's there's times when you feel really sick and you you just like end up saying like uh, 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 like you feel yeah. that bad the pigeons seem to be making that noise all the time. They're just outside of my window. Either I don't know what's going on. I, like, I don't know if that's the, just them communicating with each other or what, but they do not seem happy. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, if you're not happy here, maybe go somewhere else with all your poop. <laughs> so I have uh, recently come into possession of several thousand pounds of wood chips. I'm covering my garden area with wood chips uh, and then putting some soil on top of the wood. It's called lasagna gardening. I Mm. don't want to get into it too deeply. But (laughs) the nice thing about being in possession of many thousands of pounds of wood chips is that it requires you to be outside moving those wood chips with a pitchfork almost 24 hours a day. (laughs) And so How's your your bones and, and muscles and stuff? Bones are great. Muscles... Not I'm fine until I stop working, and then as things start to seize up pretty quickly. But the point here is that I have been afforded the opportunity to do a great deal of bird watching in uh, in the area around my home, and hmm. we have a lot of pigeons as well. We have an hmm. almost I would say an infestation of pigeons. There's some chickadees and some beautiful doves you know, that just kind of hang out on the ground. But then there are these pigeons. It's like the Piazza San Marco or something. (laughs) They just descend and hang around. And I agree with you. I'm a little bit over pigeons. Now, to me, it's not not a Canada geese level issue yet, but I'm a little bit over pigeons. Hank, do you have a short poem for us today? 
That's not how this works at all. Okay, well, I don't have one either. The pigeons at my window (laughs) poop out many eggs. (laughs) They make whole new generations. That's good, They have little little eggs. That's good. That's very good. That's very good. Uh, Speaking of babies, Mm. can I read you our first question? Oh, okay. That's really, we're really just starting now. We didn't. Okay, that was our poem. Uh, All right, Hank, our first question comes from Amanda who writes, help, three exclamation points. I just found three baby hamsters in my hamster cage. What do I do? I wasn't sure about the sex of my hamsters, but now I know for sure. I separated the parents, but I'm not sure what else to do. I don't know anything about baby hamster care. Any doobies advice would be much appreciated. Not a panda, Amanda. Also, I should add, she sent in this question two months ago. So... (laughs) Those baby hamsters are now like middle aged. So we yeah we can we can definitely not help, which is great because I the only information I have for you is that pet stores will not take baby hamsters. Is that true? Yeah, no, they won't. They're like, nope we we've, we've had enough of those. I was we actually going to suggest I was going to suggest that Amanda get into the pet store business to like see this as an unexpected business opportunity. I just I don't think that there's like a shortage of baby hamsters in the world. Uh, what, I, what I think, Amanda, you now have three new hamsters and hopefully yeah. that'll go okay. Uh, I guess you should put them with the mother if you can tell which one that is. I assume that you can. It's the one that's nursing. And just be like, fingers crossed. And if it doesn't go well, then it that's okay. They were going to die anyway, eventually. Boy, Hank's in a great mood. Well, if you, I tell you what, if you take your... Uh, so, so if you take your hamster to... Uh, if you take your hamsters to the pet store, they might be like, yeah, we'll take them, but I can't guarantee where they're going to end up. Oh, good Lord, Hank. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> you asked the question. Amanda, if I were you, I, I would turn to my favorite veterinary advice podcast, not necessarily my favorite advice podcast about death, uh, because <laughs> I don't think we're going to be able to help with this one realistically. No, I mean, but but the good news is that your hamsters are are... Uh, well on to wherever they were headed because it was two months ago anyway. This next question comes from Jessa who asks, Dear Hank and John, my roommate and I recently got into a debate about how to tip our pizza deliverer. I only had one dollar, I only had two one dollar bills, but we have a lot of quarters. I was always taught that it's rude to tip people with change in sit-down restaurants. She argued that if she were a delivery driver, she would rather have more money than less money. <laughs> that Regardless is of what form it's in. I'm pretty sure she's right. Yeah, this this got me thinking. Are there different tipping etiquettes for different kinds of jobs? Also, can I tip my pizza delivery driver with my laundry quarters? Advice of the dubious and non-dubious categories both are appreciated. John, I think that even at a sit-down restaurant, you can give change, right? You can't give just change. So Not just change. Well, I, uh, uh, well you, what I will, uh, sometimes, like, I'll get the money back and, like, I'll put 20 bucks in and then it'll come back with, like, you know, my $5.25 uh, change and then you know I'll just leave that and that's okay. Yes, that is acceptable. I don't think that you've ever been a restaurant server and I have been one, Correct. so I feel moderately more qualified to answer this question. Mm-hmm. When I was a server at a restaurant, I wanted money and I did not really care about the form of that money. Like if you wanted to leave me a roll of quarters, that would be fine. I did mind is the money clean? Is it delivered to me in a way that is designed to embarrass or humiliate me? <laughs> uh, 
for instance, the person who left me a $20 tip, thank you, uh, but covered it in um, the, I would call it the nacho cheese. Oh, no. But the restaurant that I worked at, I think we were not allowed to technically call it cheese because it didn't have any cheese in it. So we called it nacho cheese sauce. But they mm-hmm. left it covered in the nacho cheese sauce. And I was like, it's such, that's why, why? Because now I have to clean this $20 bill and go through this whole rigmarole, which is humiliating. And I, so don't, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's if good you, advice. Well, so if, you, if you're going to give somebody $6 and quarters, it's obviously not an ideal way to get tipped as a delivery driver. So I might yeah. put it in a Ziploc bag or if you can roll the quarters up so it's a little bit easier for them to deal with. But it is way better to be tipped $6 in quarters and a two and two $1 bills than it is to be tipped just two $1 bills for sure. Uh, what you got to do, Jessa, and I'm just going to throw this out here for everybody. Uh, load up that load up that 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 laundry tray with some Sacagaweas. Oh my God! Stop trying to make Sacagaweas happen. It already happened. <laughs> it's the whole. That's the whole point, John. Is that it already happened? Uh, so I mean, like, if the laundry, like you, I, it may be that your laundry list doesn't take Sacagaweas yet because they aren't here with the rest of us in the 21st century. But first of all, talk to them about that. Second, it's works in the parking meters in my town. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So Hank's, Hank's advice is to only tip in Sacagaweas to try to make Sacagaweas happen. So Hank's advice is to go to your local bank yep. and instead of getting $100 in 20s, get $100 in the form of one $1 coins and then hand those out like Ebenezer Scrooge after his revelation. <laughs> and then people will be like, oh, oh, that's money, I guess. No, it's the Sacagaweas person. It's my favorite person to deliver pizza to, the person who tips me in $1 coins. This is like walking away, loaded down, weighing five extra pounds. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. I think we've solved this problem. We're going to move on to Jessica's question, who asks, Dear Bug and Shrimp, I'm very proud to be the advice columnist of my college's newspaper. It's really cool to see Dear Jessica in print every few weeks, and I love feeling like I'm able to help someone. The problem is that hardly anybody asks me questions. As people who have a successful advice-giving platform, do you have any tips for how to get people to ask questions? Dear, comma, Jessica. Ah, the situation, Jessica, is that like both with uh, your advice column and like every other advice column that has ever gotten started from scratch is you make it up. You make them up, Jessica. You make them up. And that way you can ask questions that you know how to answer, which is nice. Uh, you can you can tailor it to your specific expertise or something that happened to you that week and be like, well, Melinda, thank you for writing in. Just this week, I was trying to figure out how to tip a pizza delivery driver with all of my Sacagaweas. <laughs> right. I mean, do you think that was a real problem that someone had, Jessica? Of course it wasn't. We made it up. Because Hank <laughs> Hank has made a solemn vow that he is going to mention Sacagaweas in every podcast we make for the rest of our lives. And so he had to make it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I feel bad that, I, that I've skipped several weeks of not mentioning Ants Canada. So Ants Canada is a oh, good God. YouTube channel. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I remember making up questions when I first started making Question Tuesday videos like 10 years ago. We would get some questions, but sometimes we wouldn't get the questions that I wanted to answer. And so <laughs> I would find myself thinking, somebody would say, oh, what's your favorite What's your favorite color? And I'd be like, that's not that interesting of a question. But if I asked, what's what's your favorite beetle first? And then I could say John Green. That would be funny. People would like that. And I so I, I think there is nothing wrong with making up the occasional question, Jessica. And in fact, I think that it will lead to people asking you more interesting questions over time because... Mm -hmm. I, that, that said, I suspect that Jessica, because she's at a college newspaper and has certain obligations as a reporter, she's probably not allowed to fabricate facts. So here's what I would do, Jessica, to get around the issue of journalistic ethics. And this is probably deeply immoral. But you have to remember that Hank and I will do whatever we need to do to get a laugh. I, <laughs> I would just say to my friend, hey... I noticed that you have this problem. Can you write me about this problem? And I would just talk to people in your real life and ask them to submit questions that are of interest to you and then start from there. And then when, once you get a following, the questions will come in on their own and they'll be fascinating, like questions about what to do about baby hamsters. Yeah, or uh, how to elicit more questions for your advice column at your newspaper. Or also this next one from Veronica. This next question comes from Veronica, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm having an identity crisis. I'm a 25-year-old Canadian named Veronica. I have been receiving emails for the past year from a British person named Veronica living across the pond, living her best life. Every time I receive one of these emails, I kindly reply back that they've got the wrong Veronica. But lately, her life has gotten very interesting, and I can't help but, like, read into her life. Things I know so far. She's recently interviewed for a teaching position at a primary school. She nailed that interview and got the job. I know this because the head of the department sends me her lesson plans. Three, she dressed up for Halloween as sexy Mrs. Claus. I got the order confirmation. Four, she owns a yacht and frequents the Yarmouth Harbor Yacht Club. Soon she'll be doing a rally to Burnbridge Harbor. Plot twist. That is a huge plot twist. It's a primary school teacher. And then I'm on one... I'm on one plot twist with sexy Mrs. Claus, and apparently British Veronica doesn't know her own email address to which to send this email confirmation, yeah. which was a big surprise for me. And then, boom, she also owns a yacht. Yeah, I got to learn more about the Yarmouth Harbor Yacht Club. Right. Uh, I mean, do we know it's a yacht? Well, what is a yacht, really? Are there little yachts? Can you have, like, a reasonable yacht? I just feel like, well, there is a White River Yacht Club here in Indianapolis. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but the White River Yacht Club, almost everyone owns some kind of small pontoon boat. But I have heard that if you are a member of the White River Yacht Club, they have reciprocity with like every other actual yacht club in the world. And so you can go to the Bermuda or whatever, and you can go to the fanciest yacht clubs because you're a member of the White River Yacht Club. I, however, am not a member of the White River Yacht Club. My part of the river is completely non-navigable and therefore inaccessible to people in their pontoon boats. I got to say, John, it appears that I, there are a lot of yacht clubs in England. I yeah. just, so this, the, the, the Yarmouth Harbor Yacht Club is on the Isle of Wight, interestingly. Ooh. Um, and uh, but there, but it's surrounded by other yacht clubs. So 
Apparently, I don't know if this person lives on the Isle of Wight. If if British Veronica lives on the Isle of Wight, that's very cool. That would be where a cool is place the to Isle live. of Wight? Is it in the north or the south? They don't have a the team south. in the football league, the so English I don't know Channel. much about them. Oh, it's yeah. like part of France. No, 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 no. He no, said, no, no. starting an international problem. <laughs> it's definitely not part of France. It is now. It's a crisis. People <laughs> are calling it. People are calling it the next great thing in international relations. France has just claimed the Isle of Wight. Veronica's got problems now. You're lucky you're living in Canada, Canadian Veronica. I, yeah, my they're big just, question: they're headed to the Isle of Wight with their cheese and their wine. My big question is: How is it that this Veronica apparently doesn't know her own email address? I mean. It, yeah, like the thing is, Catherine has this problem too because she has an email address that is an initial and then a last name. Yes, and uh, and anybody who has that email address is just gonna get it. They're gonna get it from a bunch of different folks who are like, "Yeah, that's me. I'm pretty sure that's me." Yeah, I've also been through this where I end up with an email address that's one letter or two letters different from someone else's, and you become a sort of weird neighbor of them, knowing a lot about their life and yet still not participating in it i would try to track down this british veronica and i would try to become her friend i mean she seems cool and she has a yacht we didn't finish the question uh at the end of the question veronica asks if it's okay for her to just take over other veronica's life No. And it does seem like becoming friends would be a better option, especially if you could be like, hey, so I heard that you're headed, uh, you're doing that rally to Burnbridge Harbor. I was wondering if I could just like bring a couple Mike's Hard Lemonades and do that. (laughs) The the Hank Green dream. (laughs) (laughs) Drinking drinking two Mike's Hard Lemonades is is called becoming Hank drunk. (laughs) Doesn't take much. I mean... Uh, Lightweight. Well, what I, what I can tell you, John, is that uh, the way that the Isle of Wight works appears to be that Newport is just the geographic center and it is where all of the people are. But if okay. you want to go from Yarmouth to the uh, to to wh- whatever that Burnbridge Harbor, mm-hmm. you pretty much have to go around the whole island. So I don't know which way you go. I don't know if you go around the top or around the bottom, but it's pretty much the, the complete opposite side. So that's quite a trip. I bet you could get through a couple of Mike's Hard Lemonades on that trip. It's going to be a wonderful rally. You should definitely look up Veronica, Veronica, and you guys should become friends. But don't take over her life. That's not cool. No. It's weird that you even thought about that. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's that weird, but <laughs> it's not appropriate. You've got you to squelch that desire. Speaking of which, our next question comes from Ayushi, who's, uh, the speaking of which, by the way, is completely irrelevant. It's just <laughs> a thing I like to say. How are we going to squelch this desire? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to squelch Ayushi's desire not to have an apocalypse yeah. from space. Yes. <laughs> okay. Ask the question so people are less confused. It's tortured. Dear John and Hank, in my history class, we watch CNN 10 daily because my teacher wants us to be into current events. I enjoy this bit, but the recent one was very distressing to me because it was about how we were going to go into World War Three and how it will be a space war. What the hell is <laughs> CNN 10? Well, yeah. Is this a yeah, random? I, I had to look up what CNN 10 is. Is this like a TV show for high school students in which it's like, like it's like digital CNN, I think. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. boy. The it's video is completely dedicated to how we would all die if a hacking satellite interfered with one of our good 
uh, making everything work satellites. Are we all going <laughs> to die in a space war? I find this highly improbable, but everyone in my class seems to believe it. Great job, CNN 10. And CNN <laughs> is a reputable and trustworthy corporation or something. So should I be inclined to believe it? Should I be preparing for the fight of our lives? It rhymes with sushi. Ayushi. Thanks for letting us know that. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, we might all die in a space war. Well, to be fair, though, we wouldn't all die in a space war. We would die in a space war that affects ground. Right. We wouldn't be in space when we died of the space war, but the no, space that war would, be awesome. would kill us. Yeah, right. We would die as a result of a space war. Right. Yeah, that's possible, Ayushi. I don't think it's guaranteed. No, yeah, that's the thing, is that, like, these these are are meant to be illustrative of a potential thing that may happen, and so we should be prepared to have that be a thing that does not happen, is the idea, I think, behind why they terrify us so regularly. Is oh, the, no. Is the public think, service they think they are, they think maybe that they are, they are achieving? I, I think that they know exactly what they're doing, which is trying to maximize audience retention. Mm. And the great thing about predicting the future, Ayushi, and one of the great secrets to essentially all of contemporary linear television, so far as I can tell, is that if all you do is speculate and predict the future... No one ever comes back to say, hey, wait, you've been wrong about everything because you're not talking about what is happening or what happened. You're talking about what may have happened and what might happen. And the magic of those verbs is that they allow you to never technically ever be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I And and. But I don't think that it's I don't think that it's bad to to say like, hey, look, what if what if something took our all of our good s- satellites and messed them up? Wh- how how would that go? No, for us? I think it's important. Right? It's important. To, it's important to think about problems that we might mm-hmm. have, but it's important to think about them so that we can try to prevent them, rather than thinking about them so that we can just feel kind of vaguely afraid and you know, having this like creeping sense of dread that accompanies us through every minute of our day, especially when we are young and completely powerless in the face of space wars. <laughs> I just don't know if it's that productive. Yeah, I agree with you, John. I don't think it's going to be space war, but, you know, I could be wrong. It might be. There is there's a, uh, a you know, sort of the, the like things that humans might do that will end humans. And uh, ever since we've had mm-hmm. nuclear weapons, of course, we'd have, we've kind of had the ability to to really mess up Earth pretty dang good, um, at least for us. And uh, and there's this one uh, like nanotechnology, this idea that we could create like a nanite that would just multiply and turn everything on Earth into itself. And then I recently read about uh, the, the, some scientists who accidentally made a flu virus that was uh, the kind of thing that would kill 70% of people if it got out of their laboratory. Mm. And so they just destroyed it and didn't mm. publish their research because that was like, oh, nope, that, well, that's real bad. We shouldn't. And, and like the way that they made it is not technically complicated. It's and I'm like, boy, mm. I bet wouldn't have to like go super deep into nanotechnology to to get sort of a crazy like 
global level pandemic on you ju- apparently it's just flu and like a flu virus has like eight genes john it's not complicated right it's a very simple thing right. and it's terrifying it's so scary that scares me that yeah. like that is to me uh that is that is my space war fear at the moment right ayushi since we don't think that you should be terrified at morning noon and night about space war we're gonna tell you what you should be really scared of (laughs) a genetically engineered flu virus that is extremely easy to make and that anybody could make in their laboratory and that someone eventually will make and it will destroy 70 percent of humans great hank what's next (laughs) should we we cut that out but the good news the good news ayushi no we should keep it in the good news is that you have a 30% chance of surviving this catastrophic flu. And believe you me, the world that emerges from it will be great. <laughs> Lots of stability. All of our political institutions, which can just barely survive our prosperity, will be completely intact. Don't worry. And everything will be great. People will be playing golf on manicured lawns, and it won't at all be like a post-apocalyptic hellscape. This next question comes from Ian, who asks, Dear Hank and John, (laughs) Recently, as I grocery shop, I found myself having intrusive thoughts along the lines of, what if I just take that bread from somebody else's shopping cart? And I know I'm not going to do this, but it's gotten me thinking about who has a legitimate claim to the contents of a shopping cart. The shopper hasn't paid for them yet, so legally the store still owns them. So should I legally be allowed to take something from someone else's shopping cart? But if the store's... No. Yeah, no. I mean, but legally, though. Are shopping carts like embassies <laughs> technically the territory of the store, but the shopper has sovereignty over them? Yes! That's exactly what yeah, it's like. Brilliant. Good analogy, Ian. You've answered your own question. That is a brilliant analogy. <laughs> a shopping cart is a traveling embassy. It's just like the embassy of the of the ownership of Hank. And it like it's still on the sovereign still sovereignly owned by <laughs> Safeway. But Right. Right, right. Under it's, my control. I, this this bread belongs to Safeway, but it is currently being administered by Hank. <laughs> <laughs> and Hank has reserved the right to purchase this bread from Safeway, and that sacred contract is being expressed by the fact that it is inside of Hank's yeah. cart. And let's all just enjoy the fact that we can go to a grocery store and get food because believe me, after 70% of people (laughs) are destroyed by Hank's flu virus, we're all going to be gardening. (laughs) My my little wood chip garden is going to be all that stands between whatever surviving descendants I have and complete destruction. Hank, I, I can't get over this. I'm sorry, but if I could just ask you to turn... Are we still going to, like, make a podcast? Like, what is this future going to look like? Are there going to even be podcasts? Um, well, that's the thing. We'll hold on to some technology. Podcasts might actually be more stable than, like, food systems, uh, which is a problem. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, so what I want to say, to dial back the fear factor a little bit, is that... This is something that's known by people who study these things. And part of the reason they study them is so that like we can anticipate changes flu viruses might make naturally um, because eventually these things might even happen naturally without somebody with, 
you know, malicious intent. And so that we can create vaccines for those things, so that we can treat them, so that we can, uh, yeah, all that good stuff. So there, the, the reason that scientists are working on this is so that it isn't someday a problem, and hopefully that will be a thing. And also they're doing it intelligently enough that they realized when once they did it that they should undo it. Yeah, they did. I don't know that I trust every group of people who stumble upon a discovery to be equally... I, it just worries me. It's a little... I, it just freaks me out a little bit, but I'm going to assume that everything's going to be fine because I've been alive for 40 years and everything as well, it hasn't really, it's been a really good four decades for humans. And I believe that the next four decades can be even better. And I know that I talked about how I was completely abandoning optimism for pessimism and that I still believe that this was the best year yet, but I also believe that it would be the best year ever. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, Hank, I'm back to okay. optimism. I believe we are good at solving problems and we will find a way to solve them, which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by the people who chose not to share that flu with the world. <laughs> the people who chose not to share that flu with the world, saving actual billions of lives. This podcast is also brought to you by the Yarmouth Harbor Yacht Club, the Isle of Wight. <laughs> serving up yachts and Mike's Hard Lemonades to American and British Veronicas. Also Canadian. She was Canadian. Sorry, Canadian. <laughs> and today's podcast is, of course, brought to you, as always, by Sacagaweas. Sacagaweas, <laughs> just on the cusp of happening since their release. And additionally, this podcast is brought to you by The Space War. The Space War, it's coming for you. I have to say, Hank, before we move on, how much I like the cover of your book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, which is available for pre-order now. Uh, I, I, it's a really, really cool book cover. I hope that you're happy with it. It's pretty rare to get a book cover on a first novel that is so good. Yeah, I like it so, so much. I, I have been thinking, obviously, a lot about book covers lately, and um, and there's a lot of different directions you can go, and you start from this sort of infinite number of possibilities um and i think we ended up in a really great place i'm looking at it right now john i am i've never been more uh, uh obsessed with a piece of design in my life i <laughs> well uh, the weird have an thing, unhealthy relationship with how much i like this book cover the weird thing is that you do as the author have to live with it so much and for so long and in a way that mm -hmm. nobody else has to right because it's going to be you're going to show it to your kids and hopefully one day you'll show it to your grandkids. And, you know, our great, mm -hmm. great uncle wrote a novel and there are hardly any copies in circulation, but you and I have seen the cover of it. And so it's something that that survives in a weird way. And as the author, I mean, I know that like the cover of Looking for Alaska, I never could have imagined how much time I was going to spend looking at that cover and thinking about it over the next 15 years. Uh, but I'm yeah. very, I'm very grateful that uh, I ended up with a cover of a book that I like. And actually these days, all of my book covers are, are ones that I like. So it, that is a real blessing and, and a rare one. So I'm glad that you like it. I really like it. I'm really happy for you. And also John, not me, John with no H donated to the project for awesome uh, to get us to say this message, which we are happy to say, because we are really interested in the work that uh, this organization is doing. So this is John's message that he donated to the Project for Awesome to get us to say. This message is a plug for an organization I'm a really big fan of, GiveWell, a nonprofit 
dedicated to finding outstanding giving opportunities through in-depth analysis. Thousands of hours of research have gone into funding their top-rated charities. These charities are evidence-based, thoroughly vetted, and underfunded. If you want to know more, check out givewell.org and check out their research. So again, that's givewell.org. Thank you, John, for donating to the P4A and for taking the opportunity to try to decrease world suck. Totally dope. That was very cool of you, John. I thought that was going to be about me, but it wasn't. It was about a different John. I've always just wanted was, you to say that true. about me, but it's never happened. Let's answer some more you're, questions. You're, you're also dope. Uh-huh. Is that what you wanted to hear? This question comes from Will, who asks, Dear Hank and John, my girlfriend and I just moved in together for the first time, and I am ecstatic. However, I do have a slight qualm. She has these lamps and tables that are bright periwinkle. How do I express to her that they don't exactly go with the rest of the decor and that I would rather go with simple white? Her mom painted them and I don't want to offend my possible future mother-in-law. Her mom can be a bit standoffish at times. Any dubious advice would be greatly appreciated. Where, where there's a way, there's a will. Um, Will? Yeah, Will. Will? I think John and I have the same piece of advice for you. You're gonna learn to love those bright periwinkle <laughs> tables and lamps because people who you care about, who are important to you and your life, worked hard to make them and made conscious, careful, thoughtful choices about that color, and you're gonna incorporate it into your life. Yep. That's it, man. Uh, I mean, let's see, let's hard see. Is out. there another? Is there more to say about this, or I, is there just another way to say it? Uh, yeah, I. Yeah, but I even mean, aesthetically, just paint the other stuff white, right? And so, so the periwinkle becomes the pop of color in that room. Just have have your bed be neutral or your carpet be neutral. There, I think I'm not an expert in this field, but I think it is a bad plan to repaint that lamp. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's a weird conversation to to have. Uh, to to some extent, like you may imagine this as like emotional labor on your part, like a thing that you are doing, um, and that it means that your like your living experience isn't the exact way that you would imagine it, um, but that it is. It is a it is a part of being a part of this new thing that you are creating with your SO. It took me a second to figure out what an SO was, but now I realize <laughs> it's a significant other. I was just gonna highlight that for people who might have struggled with it the way I was struggling with it. <laughs> We have something in our house that is somewhat similar to this. There's a painting in our house that there's stuff that we you once you once you form a partnership i think you start to pick out stuff together right but then there's mm -hmm. st some stuff that you bring into the relationship that you bring into the first apartment that you know like you picked out on your own and it might not suit the other person's interests and that you you may you may not have picked together and here's what i tell myself when i see this one painting someone i love loves this painting that's what i think and I find it very mm -hmm. helpful. And it makes me like the painting. And I think eventually you're going to like those periwinkle lamps. Actually, to me, they sound nice. I think, Will, you might be wrong on every level. I think these periwinkle <laughs> lamps might be a winner. But even you're if they're wrong not... on every level. I think, this is what you write in for the, to the pod for. <laughs> 
I'm just trying. I'm trying to level with you, Will. I think I think you're headed down the wrong path. <laughs> Hopefully, we saved you in time. All right, Hank. This next question comes from Megan, who writes, "Dear John and Hank, I must know where does the phrase 'the world is your oyster' come mm. from, and how does it make any sense? Yeah. If the world is your oyster, does this mean the purpose of life is to discover your pearl? Yeah. What if your oyster doesn't have a pearl, and if a pearl is actually just made up of irritants and calcium, isn't it more like a kidney stone? <laughs> Are you allergic to shellfish? Dubious answers are welcome, as my friends and I have been plagued by this question for." a long, long time, although apparently not long enough to Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Was that part of the question or did you add that in? No, I added that in. Uh, So uh, I don't want you. you, Are you going to tell me the actual answer to this question? I am going to tell you the actual answer, but go ahead and speculate first. I'm just going to say that like what I know about oysters is that they're ugly and and like gross and and like scraggly on the outside and then inside the inside of the shells are nice but then there's like this goopy soupy thing that is the the animal itself and so i don't even really know where the oyster begins and where the shell begins i don't like i'm not entirely sure like the world is my oyster meaning you can open it up and see what's in there i guess but in general i just feel like no no first of all oysters very small very simple and goopy gross i don't want my world to be any of those things and indeed, the way that it is currently used makes no sense, especially when you find out where the phrase came from, mm. which is from William Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. And in this scene, Falstaff says, I will not to Pistol, I will not lend you any money. I will not lend thee a penny. And then Pistol replies, why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open And then Falstaff says, not a penny. So what Pistol is saying is, okay, you won't lend me any money. I get that. I know how uh, to get money out of you by using a sword, i.e. I am going to rob you. I am going to force your pocketbook open with my sword the way that I would force Mm. an oyster open with my sword. So it has essentially no relationship to the idea that the world is your oyster because uh, i mean i guess maybe the world is your oyster if you have if you already have money no, i think or the, the idea world is, is your the, oyster the, the, if you have a sword the oyster is sitting there waiting for you to open it up right but in the scene what's happening is that pistol is threatening right, falstaff the with theft well, is, aren't we all stealing every time we eat an oyster because it w- that was the property of the oyster? Yes. The body of the oyster. I, I, I find it to have been essentially like a mistranslated phrase that it must be the way that it the way yes. something something maybe it's iambic or something there must be something about the phrase itself that feels true to us even though makes the no more sense. you investigate it yeah. the less true it becomes <laughs> which is maybe also reflective of something about how we actually think that we have a lot of control and sovereignty over our lives and what happens to them. But in fact, the world in in truth is almost never our oyster. Right. The world is your oyster in the sense that uh, maybe the world is just like some oyster somewhere far away that you can't control and that you have you will never be able to find. And it may or may not have pearls in it. It's just like every person has an oyster and it only exists for a limited amount of time and you like no one ever actually gets it. There you go. Thanks for listening to Dear Hank and John. <laughs>
<laughs> this next question. I just like, one more question before we get to the news from Mars and AFC okay. and John. It comes from Aaron, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I've recently been invited to join a small weekly critique group, which is fantastic, but one of the members looks almost exactly like Ryan Gosling. The resemblance is eerie. I can't look at him in the eye. It's like looking into the sun. How do I have to... Sp- and now I have to spend one evening a week in his presence. This guy has a reputation for being professional and kind and honest. He's a good contact to have. I can't risk weirding him out, and yet... I'm sure that I'll either say something idiotic or else avoid interaction to the point of unfriendliness. I could do with some dubious advice right about now. Trial and Aaron. So my best friend Chris looks a lot like Vince Vaughn. I realize this isn't the exact same problem, Aaron. But he looks more like Vince Vaughn. It's a different problem. In some ways, he looks more like Vince Vaughn than contemporary Vince Vaughn does. Like, Chris looks more like Mm -hmm. Vince Vaughn in Wedding Crashers than Vince Vaughn looks like Vince Vaughn in Wedding Crashers. And the way that I dealt with this, Aaron, is by the first time I hung out with Chris, I had a few drinks, and then I looked over at him and I said, you know, you look exactly like Vince Vaughn and you also talk like Vince Vaughn and it almost seems like kind of a performance. And he paused (laughs) and he said, I usually get Vincent D'Onofrio. And then then it was over. A different Vince? Who's Vincent D'Onofrio? He was in like Law and Order Criminal Intent. I think he... I think he had a long and storied career before that, but I most recently oh. saw him in Law and Order Criminal Intent. Yeah, no, that guy looks like Chris. Yeah, essentially every Hollywood actor named Vince looks like Chris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is Vincent D'Onofrio the guy who plays uh, the Edgar in Men in Black? Possibly. And then the alien puts on the the Edgar suit. I feel like we're stumbling into this week's This Week in Ryan, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I have you had ever had the problem where you are sort of like uh, someone is so like I don't know beautiful to look at that it interferes with your ability to have a normal human relationship. Well, with oh, them? is that the question? I thought that it was so distracting. I, think I so. thought it was just so distracting to have somebody who looked like a celebrity. I think I misinterpreted the question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a little bit of both. So one. Uh, it's it, this person looks like Ryan Gosling. Second, have you seen Ryan Gosling? Yeah, no, he's he's got a very symmetrical face. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to solve that second problem. I only know how to solve the problem of making making it normal to announce to someone that they look like a celebrity. I suppose if that celebrity is Ryan Gosling, it is a form of. It, it, it is weird to say you look like Ryan Gosling, right? Because Ryan Gosling is widely perceived to be the definition of, the of hotness. Yeah. So maybe mm-hmm. you just say, hey, has anybody ever told you you look like Ryan Reynolds? <laughs> no. No, you got to go with, you go with uh, hey, has anyone ever told you you look like adult Macaulay Culkin? Here's the thing that you should do, actually, Aaron, is you should just wait because eventually this person will start to look like themselves. It's totally true. It'll, it'll, that is, that is my advice. Yes. In, in my experience, uh, people start to become themselves and they start to become people and, and what they look like fades a lot. There you go. That's our advice. Hank, we've got to get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. But first, I just want to say a quick thank you to everybody who supports Dear Hank and John on Patreon. You can get our weekly terrible podcast, This Week in Ryan's, where we've discussed, I believe, both Ryan Gosling and Ryan Reynolds. Um, but you can go to patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John and get you don't have to actually sign up to see the content. 
but you can, if you want, donate. And then the money goes to Complexly to support SciShow and Crash Course and The Art Assignment and the other uh, shows that we make at Complexly. So thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon. You can listen to This Week in Ryan's after you listen to this podcast over at patreon.com slash dear Hank and John. But Hank, what is the news from Mars this week? Uh, in news from Mars this week, John... The Mars Curiosity rover, as we have discussed previously, uh, has a drill on it that broke. So it's uh, it's the only way we have to get samples from the interior of rocks on Mars, and that's a big deal because the exterior of rocks on Mars has chemistry that happens to it and is thus going to be different from the interior. Uh, so you can drill in there and then scoop a little bit of the sample up and then take it over to the onboard science laboratories on the Curiosity rover. But uh, more than a year ago, that drill broke. Uh, one of the little motors that keeps it in place broke, and we've been troubleshooting it to try and get it to collect dust, uh, to figure out how to drill into rocks ever since then. And uh, we've got a, like a earthbound one that we had been testing to get it to figure out how to do this, and it figured out how to do it. And then we sent all that software up to the Curiosity rover, and just this week, it made its first drill on the surface of Mars in over a year, a successful test drill. The next step is to try and figure out how to actually get that dust that it drilled up from the rock to the onboard laboratories. And that also, the, all the systems, that's part of what broke is the systems that would get that there. So what they're thinking about doing is actually using the drill bit, moving the drill bit over to the the laboratories, basically tapping the drill bit to get the dust to just fall off of it. Um, and that works with the the one here on Earth, but obviously, you know, their atmosphere and gravity are different on Earth. So hopefully it will work on Mars too, but we don't know. But it has done its first uh, sample test uh, drill since it broke, and it worked, and everybody's very excited. And I uh, I, basically, I could watch a documentary film on uh, the year of work that these engineers have done to get that drill back up and running. You should have made that documentary. That sounds properly interesting, especially if you have the right soundtrack. I find that in general, <laughs> it's totally true. you mostly need a good score. So speaking of scoring... Um, Mm, we haven't been. <laughs> AFC Wimbledon, America's favorite third-tier English soccer team, uh, lost their most recent game. Oh, no. Uh, well, actually, their most recent game was canceled because of weather. I don't know if you heard about this, but there was this huge storm in England. They called it the Beast from the East because it originated in Russia, and it was very cold there, and there was a frozen pitch, so they couldn't play. Uh, so... There's that. There are now 11 games remaining in the League One season, and AFC Wimbledon is clinging, clinging by one point to safety right now in in 19th place. Uh, 21st through 24th go down. AFC Wimbledon is just barely safe in 19th place on 38 points after 35 games. There are 11 games left to ensure safety. Wimbledon are going to need 52 points, so that's... 14 points from their remaining 11 games. That's a lot. <sighs> it's very, I don't want to minimize how nerve wracking it is. I, I want to be hopeful yeah. and optimistic, but it is very scary. And this, you know, obviously the stakes are, are extremely high. It's hard to get up to League One. It took a Herculean effort and a little bit of luck for Wimbledon to get up to League One, and uh, it would be pretty devastating to get relegated. So right now, one point clear, 
And also, uh, the franchise currently playing its trade in Milton Keynes is in the relegation zone, 32 points after 35 games. So there is still the distinct possibility that those two clubs are going to be vying for safety at the end of the season, which is terrifying. And yes, boy, hmm, I'm worried. Mm. Mm-hmm. So is the, the game you lost was to the team that was going to beat you probably no matter what, right? That is correct. Uh, and they did beat us no matter what. They beat us 3-0, and it was not close. But next we play Oxford United, and then a huge game against... We have actually three of our remaining games are against teams currently in the relegation zone. So those games are obviously all massive. So it, hey, we'll see. Yeah. Okay, well, so that, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's really interesting. So that's, that's coming up in the next weeks or the next week? No, the game, um, yeah, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day is, is a big game. That's a, you don't want to, you don't want to talk about must win games because that only puts pressure on the team. I don't want to put pressure on the team. But I don't think they listen to this, so I'll tell you the truth. It's a must-win game. All right. Well, we're all rooting for you, John. Thanks, Hank. What did we learn today? Well, we learned that the inside of your shopping cart is dip, has diplomatic immunity from the rest of the shoppers. We learned that the Yarmouth Harbor Yacht Club is your number one Yarmouth Yacht Club. Actually, probably not. <laughs> It might, it might, I think it is. I think it's the number one Yarmouth Yacht Club. I think there's just the one. It's certainly top not. five. It's top five. <laughs> we learned that uh, baby hamsters, we don't know what to do with them, and I don't know why you're asking us. And we learned that space wars might kill us, but not if the flu does first. John, thanks for making a podcast with me. Always a pleasure. Um, I don't remember how we end the podcast. Uh, usually you read the credits. Oh, this podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. This music that you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast and during This Week in Ryan's is all by the great Gunnarola and, as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.